So tonight I'd like to speak about connectedness, interconnectedness, and finding refuge in the Sangha. The word Sangha meaning community or being in the company of like-minded others. It's so helpful to remember that we come out of an ancient tradition. You know, this tradition is over 2,500 years old. And so many, many beings before us over these last over 2,500 years have walked this very same path and have worked with the very same states of mind that we find ourselves working with. It's quite an extraordinary thought to recognize that all of the states of mind that we experience throughout the day today are documented in the sutras, which were written over 2,500 years ago. You know, we think we're so different or so unique or modern life or this or that, but in actuality, it just describes what we already know. In the Buddhist time, there were the same difficulties. People reported the experience of longing and of anger and of jealousy and of grief and of fear and of sadness. So it's so important to recognize that we are part of something old and vast. You know, we are stepping into something when we practice together. Historically, of course, these teachings were preserved by the monastic tradition. And so sometimes when people use the word sangha, what they mean by it is the community of monks and nuns. But nowadays this word sangha is seen as much more inclusive. Oftentimes what is meant by sangha is, um, includes anyone who follows the Buddha's teachings. And certainly... Um, Many people who are drawn to this path have come out of other traditions and don't want to be called a Buddhist, you know, or an ist of any sort, or follow any kind of ism. So this is completely unnecessary if this pertains to you. And for some people, there's kind of a a family sense. You know, there's a sense of of family in aligning oneself with um, with as saying one is a Buddhist. I remember when I went to Sri Lanka two years ago, right after the tsunami, one reason I went was because I felt that the culture there, um, I might be of help because of understanding the Buddhist lineage, the Buddhist tradition being a predominantly Buddhist culture. And really, it was actually true. You could go just about anywhere and start chanting, and it was seen as normal. And... Um, kind of people would join in with you. It was a way, instead of like shaking somebody's hand, it was a way to say hello and have a sense of friendliness about things. The Buddha was once asked, has anyone not ordained, who has not ordained as a monk or a nun awakened? Is there anybody who has woken up who did not ordain as a monk or a nun? And what the Buddha said was, there has not been just one person. There have been many who have awakened, who have lived a householder life. 
And you can see in the sutras that all kinds of people realized freedom. You know, it didn't have to do with education, different levels of education, different kinds of work, different classes of people, families. There's a lot of, there's a number of of those of you who have come with your families. And families awoke. May all families in this room awaken together. Seven-year-olds, there's so many stories about um, seven-year-olds who awoke during the Buddhist time. So what this means is that each one of us has the potential to awaken. Practicing together gives us strength. As Dogen said, people can help each other by combining their strengths as they practice. And really the image is of a fire where if there is one log on the fire, it's good. You know, um, the fire burns if you burn it properly. But then if you add logs to that fire, there is really a, a great flame that arises. And so this is what happens when we practice together. It's so helpful when we hit um, difficult spots in our practice, when we're here together, to you know just open one's eyes and realize that everybody else, no matter what they're experiencing inwardly, everyone's still sitting. And it's so helpful, it's so strengthening to recognize this, to realize this, and to realize that there are so many other choices that we could make. Endless choices that we could make. Sometimes in this environment, we feel somewhat compelled or forced. We've got to go to another sitting. You know, oh God, there's another walking. But in reality, every sitting and every walking, we are actively choosing. may not look that way, but of course, there's so many other things we could be doing. There's so many other choices we could be making, and we are choosing to sit and to walk. We need each other because the practice does go against the grain of the culture. We need the strength that practicing together offers us, brings. You know, in this world at large, strong views and opinions are actually seen as something that one needs to have. You're kind of seen as inept or foolish or something along those lines if you don't have a view and an opinion about everything. And actually, when we're, nothing wrong with views and opinions, of course, but when we're overly attached to our views and opinions, it narrows the world. Our world becomes very narrow and very tight and very tense. And so we don't always actually even have to have a view and an opinion about everything. And we certainly don't have to have the attachment that we may have to the views and opinions that we do have. Certainly in the culture at large, a definition of being successful oftentimes has to do with being busy and frantic. It kind of computes into one and the same thing. Doing and accumulating and becoming seems much more important than being. And so to practice with one another, understanding a sense of being helps us so much. In the world at large, oftentimes the idea is to live for the future. There's a great value put in greed and accumulation. 
And it's quite radical to sit in stillness. From a conventional point of view, to sit in stillness and to do nothing equals passivity and laziness. But from a meditative point of view, we're not doing nothing. We are keeping our hearts still. There is actually a vibrant, creative, inner activity occurring from moment to moment as we practice. The cultural conditioning that surrounds us is an obsession with externals, looking and searching for happiness outside ourselves as if it could be found. And it's easy to forget. I think it's easiest to forget that happiness lies within. And to remind one another of this, that happiness lies within. We absorb the environment around us when we practice together. And in this atmosphere, we really touch the great beauty in letting go, the beauty of non-attainment, the beauty of non-accumulation, the beauty of touching happiness within, experiencing the joy of sitting quietly and touching an inner authenticity, touching that which is unconditioned. We are indeed part of a much larger sangha as well. We are really part of a greater community of those seeking freedom and truth, really beyond Buddhism. Anyone who wants to wake up, we can feel a part of. And we experience this through a commitment to being present. We experience this through doing our best to not engage in harmful actions, actions that harm ourselves and actions that harm others. We can see that our path has nothing to do with achievement or with attainment. And we find ourselves in quite a competitive culture. And instead of believing and buying into this, we can find that we can be mindful of our feelings of competition. It's almost second nature to compare. Even in families, always one child is compared with another child. Why? You know, simply because they're in the same family together. And usually, one person is inferior and one child is superior to the other in terms of talents or skills or this or that. And it's, it's, it's something that is really quite embedded in the culture that I don't think we have to go along with. When we do go along with it, when we reinforce um, the tendency to compare and to compete, it reinforces the discontent that comes from feelings of separateness and incompleteness. And so this is really what we want to pay attention to. Yeah. Instead of engaging in the cultural ideas of competing and comparing, instead being mindful of that habit of those tendencies. This Buddha spoke very clearly about wise friendship. Because wise and compassionate friends 
bring the teachings to life. We can see the Dharma manifested in others. We can actually visibly touch the teachings. The teachings become more tangible when we see them expressed in others around us. Wise friends can help keep the practice alive when things are difficult. And having wise friends are a way to ground the practice in reality. In letting go of our conditioning of competitiveness and comparing, we can be deeply inspired by one another. In the sutras, the Buddha emphasized the importance of noble friendship and suitable conversation. He said that when we want to have a particular quality for ourselves to be with those who have it, you know, if we want to learn how to steal cars, good to be with those who are skilled in stealing cars. If, he didn't exactly say that because there were no cars at that time, but in the spirit of this, if we want to be with if we want to know patience and loving kindness within ourselves, to um, rub, rub elbows with those whom we feel um, uh, really aspire to this themselves or know some patience, know loving kindness, because we influence each other so much. Now, we are influenced and we influence one another because we are so interconnected. So we really rub off on one another, whether we want to or not. It's really more than just inspiration to be around people who have the qualities that one wants within oneself. It's more of a sense of transmission because there's an absorption that occurs, an inevitable absorption that occurs. Although always we are exerting our own efforts, and it's nobody else's efforts, we can get a clearer sense of what the qualities of heart are that we wish to encourage and cultivate within ourselves, and the wonder of them when embodied in others. It really points to and strengthens our own latent wisdom and generosity and kindness, and compassion, and equanimity. And it touches what we know and simply have forgotten. Those we choose to be with in very intimate ways really exert a strong influence on us. And we want to see, are we drawn into particular relationships because of a strong desire or pull? Are we drawn into particular relationships because of the past, because of their familiarity? Or are we drawn to relationships because of wisdom? It really is a true treasure to find honest and truthful friends we can check out our assumptions and our conclusions. You know, so often we have assumptions and conclusions about one another, and we can't always ask. It's not always appropriate to ask. Certainly in many situations, it's totally inappropriate to ask and to check our assumptions out. 
But when we have very good, honest, um, close friends, we can check our assumptions out. We can be direct with one another. It's kind of the bliss of having Dharma friends, is we can really use our Dharma friendships as, as a path unto itself. Dharma friends can help us to see the ways that we suffer unnecessarily, can help us to see our blind spots, can help us to recognize and transform the inevitable obstacles that we meet along the way. Now, hearing this about wise friends and noble friendship, in no way is the Buddha instructing us to avoid or to insulate ourselves. Because there's so much to learn in this life when we're not so protected or supported. So we don't want to veer away from this. We don't, of course, have to search far to find ourselves challenged and provoked in friendship, in relationship. However, we can observe our minds And it is possible to awaken wherever we are and with whomever we are with. We develop patience and compassion in situations that provoke impatience and aversion. If we're willing to be mindful of our reactivity, if we're willing to take responsibility, if we're willing to free ourselves from the idea of being a victim subjugated to the whims of others. And this is really where mindfulness comes in. If we really truly know that happiness lies within, can be found within, then we don't have to be as subjugated to the whims of others. Mindfulness really offers us an inner strength, an inner sense of protection. Another aspect of taking refuge in Sangha means taking refuge in our interconnectedness with all beings. Being aware of our deep sense of there being a common bond. As Neem Karoli Baba once said, don't throw anyone out of your heart. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. What this means, because this is so hard to do, is that we don't only want to sense our interconnectedness. We really need to live it. We really need to take it on as a practice, the practice of opening the heart. Not just as words, But when we find ourselves thinking that we have to throw someone out of our heart, now that needs to be the kind of the red flag that this is the time to practice. This is the very moment where practice is required with that temptation to throw people out of our heart. Certainly, not throwing anyone out of our heart doesn't mean 
approving or condoning unskillful actions. No. It definitely means that we need to be able to say no. It doesn't mean not being able to say no. And actually, sometimes throwing someone out of one's house is the only way that we can avoid throwing them out of our heart. This is truly true. This is really true. Because it's something inner. We want to work with keeping our heart open and free. And when there is that tension, when there is that contraction, when there is anger, when there is bitterness, when there is resentment, that is the time to practice. So certainly actions might have to be taken. But to work with the heart, to recognize that our main work in this life, whatever work we have or career we have or, you know, whether we're a student or um, whatever we, our occupation may be, our real work in this life is to care for our hearts. Yeah? And caring for our hearts means caring for our hearts when the torments of heart have arisen. Yeah? In reactivity to certain situations, in reactivity to certain people or a certain one person, that is really the time when the heart needs to be cared for. So in that moment, the recognition that we need to take care of the quality of our hearts. What this means is caring for the reactivity that emerges, that arises and seeing if it can be worked with in a different way than the old and familiar way. It is truly necessary to recognize that in this world, in this world of relationship, when in contact with others, we are inevitably going to get hurt. Inevitably going to get hurt. It's not possible to live in this world and for others to cooperate in the ways that we want. Now, certainly, um, certainly not in the very small ways that we would hope for, you know? but in the very big ways, people don't cooperate with our ideas about how they should. And so to enter into this world, to practice the Dharma with one another, means to be aware that we will be hurt. What's so crucial is to work with that hurt in a different way than we may have grown up working with it, which is really usually not working with it. You know, and we can, we can see that our first reaction is usually to hold on to it, to cling, to make it into something. You know, usually that's the first reaction, and that's fine. That's just what happens. You know? But then can we take the next step? Can we be mindful of that hurt? Can we be aware that out of that hurt generally comes anger? And then can we creatively find ways to work with that anger, to be with that anger, so that we're not completely mired in it? The alternative really is to be mindful, because if we're not, generally we either withdraw or we blame in some way. With mindfulness, it's possible to risk something different. Instead of 
the old familiar pathways, the old familiar and unworkable ways. Perhaps we can take refuge in open-heartedness to that which is new and unfamiliar. So when we feel hurt, you know, and in this environment, maybe we have felt hurt in some way, or maybe we have memories of having been hurt, and these memories of having been hurt arise over and over again. We can ask ourselves, am I relating to this in an habitual way? When I'm up against that which seems unworkable, what does it mean to practice? Is it possible to practice with this in a different way? Is there another option? Is there another alternative than the same old way of suffering? We need to have enormous patience with our patterns because they've been around a long time and they will be around a long time. And so we really need to be quite patient. I remember a very difficult situation some time ago where I actually prescribed metta to myself for 15 minutes a day. Now, the Buddha was known to be a physician. He, he was, um, spoke about himself as a physician, you know, a physician of the heart, really. And so healing the, the aches and pains of the, of the heart. You know? And so I was acting in that way when I was kind of prescribing metta to myself. Yeah? And really, it was a tough case, so 15 minutes really seemed to be required. And not all that easy, you know, every single day to spend 15 minutes practicing metta towards a very difficult um, situation. Yeah? And yet, the fruits and the benefits, it goes against something that is old and deep. And yet, the fruits and the benefits are remarkable, remarkable and beneficial. So we can practice letting go of the inner dialogue, and we can experience anger and hurt in our bodies instead of in that constant dialogue back and forth, where, of course, we're controlling the whole thing. The entire dialogue is up to us. It's a little bit of a setup. We say what we want to say, And then the person who has said what has hurt us so much, they say that a million times. They've only said it once in actuality, but we make them say it a million times. And that's who they become to us. You know, whatever other aspects of being they may have, they become that one statement, that one idiotic thing that they said. Who knows out of what intention either? So we have them say it over and over again to us. You know? And then we come up with witty ways to um, say what we wish we had said in the moment. You know? And it's staying on a very superficial level when we do this. It's so seductive. It's so compelling. We love it. You know? But it's staying on a very superficial level that doesn't lead us to any degree of transformation. So it's allowing ourselves to see that inner dialogue and just experiment. We don't have to say, I'm going to renounce you. You know, we just have to experiment with putting it down in the moment. Now, we can pick it up in an hour. 
Now, it's not like we have to say forever, I'm going to put you down, but just in the moment putting it down and then in its place bringing in a real mindfulness to what is happening in the body in that moment. Where is the anger in your body? You know, where is the hurt? Where is the vulnerability? And can we respond compassionately to that vulnerability? Can we respond compassionately to those feelings of hurt? Relationships really reflect arenas to us that are not fully integrated in us. There's a story about this man who was on retreat on a mountain, and he spent a good long time on this mountain, sitting in silent contemplation. And after a good long time, he began to feel a great deal of spaciousness and joy and bliss. And and then he he felt it for quite a long time on the mountain. And then he thought, ah, I've got to leave this mountain. I have to go down and share my newfound wisdom and bliss and joy with others in the village that is below me. So he gathered up his things and he started to walk down the mountain meager belongings, you know, and he started to walk down the mountain. He was very conscious, very mindful as he started to walk down. And he noticed in the distance there was this woman walking up and, um, you know, just noticed the woman. He was thinking, I can share my wisdom and my compassion and my, my newfound joy with her. She'll be my first person that I can share it with. And this person started, this woman, you know, got closer and closer. And then Um, As she got close to him, before he could say what he wanted to say, which is, you know, can I share my newfound wisdom and joy with you, she kind of knocked him with her burden that she had on her back. She had this big kind of thing on her, burden on her back, and she kind of knocked him over, probably hit him in the head. And he immediately got angry and said, what are you doing? Why, Why are you hitting me? And got quite insulted. And in this, of course, he saw it all collapsed. You know, in contact, he was alone. He was by himself on a mountain. Things were fine. Things were cool, you know? And then he goes into the marketplace, and the marketplace was one person. It wasn't even the whole village. It was this one person, you know, who mistakenly hits him, doesn't even mean to hit him, you know? And then he blows up, you know? And this is, this is what happens when we're in contact with one another, you know? This is the difficulty of being in contact with one another and It's the great blessing that we have. This is how we help one another, is by being in contact with one another and then using the reactivity that arises, you know, really seeing what arises out of contact as our practice, as our path. Because the only way that we will truly uncover the natural radiance of the heart is by seeing that which is covering it over. You know? And we get a glimpse into this, um, maybe sitting alone somewhere. But when we're together, and even when we're sitting alone somewhere, you know, people come up in our mind. Um, agonies from the past come up in our mind. Plans, um, ideas about the future come up in our mind. When we are sitting together, 
we have the chance to really see into the obstructions that are in within our own heart that arise because of contact with one another. And then we can really, truly, wholeheartedly take this up as our practice. And so there's a, a letting go, a moving into the natural radiance of the heart through being aware of what obstructs. And so we help one another. And so almost we could go around, you know, if we were corny about it, we could go around bowing to everybody, everybody, even if we're not corny. We could go about (laughs) bowing to everyone, you know, simply for being themselves, simply for being themselves, and then evoking or provoking something within us. And then that's our opportunity. That's our invitation right in that moment to practice with it. So many moments go by because we don't see it as a practice opportunity. You know, we see it as a problem. We see it as a solid obstacle. Whereas if we could turn things around and see the contact as a practice opportunity, then this is a way that the heart can truly free itself. Because we can truly be feeling quite loving when we're sitting and our eyes are closed and you know, nothing much is happening. And then we can find ourselves quite disturbed and upset when we are in contact. We can have great ideas about generosity and being generous to this person and that person. And then you know, in the moment of actually giving something, whether it's a kind word or some approval or you know, something that we own or something like that, it's so much harder, you know, so much easier to enjoy those thoughts of generosity. I'm going to, when I leave here, give this person this or give this person that. Yeah, but then in the actuality, when there is that letting go that has to happen, it can really, we can say, okay, another time. There's more time to do that. Yeah, we just kind of put it off because it's hard. It's not easy. And yet, practice is always going against our tendencies for the sake of freedom. So examining ourselves with great commitment to honesty, to honesty, being aware of our limitations, and gently stretching, gently and yet without complacency stretching, This is where other people help us so much because it's hard to be complacent when we're in contact. Sometimes we try our best to avoid conflict so that we don't, won't have these feelings and reactions arise within our hearts. But this really doesn't work. It really doesn't work. We need to learn how to work with what arises skillfully. You know, we need to learn how to be with one another in more graceful and skillful ways, communicating when communication is appropriate rather than trying to avoid. I mean, if we've lived long enough, we can see how many knots we get into because of our efforts to avoid. Sometimes we make our lives so much more complicated because we have tried to avoid a difficult situation, instead of looking to see, is there another way that we could approach this difficult situation? You know, and sometimes it's so much simpler when we can move into it, but take our practice with us. 
learning how to regain our balance in the midst of reactivity and conflict. And sometimes it's really simply a matter of recognizing that we can feel our feet touch the floor, you know, that always our feet are touching the floor somewhere. And sometimes it's really just that simple of remembering that we can be aware of our feet touching the floor. Finding ways to regain a sense of balance within us so that we can move into arenas of conflict with some degree of courage. Our confidence grows so enormously when we are in our lives like this. Instead of taking refuge in withdrawing or taking refuge in our anger or taking refuge in our avoidance, you know, we can really have a greater degree of confidence when we are willing to meet life as it is with our practice as an ally. I'd like to read you something by Uchiyama Roshi that I like. Behind a temple, there was a field where there were many squashes growing on a vine. One day, a fight broke out among them, and the squashes broke up into two groups and made a big racket, shouting at one another. The head priest heard the uproar, and going out to see what was going on, found the squashes quarreling. In his booming voice, the priest scolded them. He said, hey, squashes, what are you doing out there fighting? Everybody meditate. Meditate right now. (laughs) The priest taught them how to meditate. Fold your legs like this. Sit up and straighten your back and neck. I didn't know squashes had backs and necks, but I guess they do have necks. Right. While the squashes were meditating in the way the priest had taught them, their anger subsided and they settled down. Then the priest quietly said, Everyone, please put your hand on top of your head. When the squashes felt the tops of their heads, they found some weird string attached there. It turned out to be a vine that connected them all together. Hey, this is really strange, the squashes said. Here we've been arguing when actually we're all tied together in living just one life. What a mistake. It's just as the priest said. After that, the squashes all got along with each other quite well. (laughs) And of course, the moral of the story is that if a squash can do it, we can do it too. (laughs) The, The squashes found this sense of connectedness and interconnectedness through the inner stillness that they had learned. You know, it allowed them this kind of recognition. And for us, we can learn this through a very concerted effort from moment to moment to see where we're caught, you know, to see if we can a little bit, sometimes just a little bit, let go of our agendas and our expectations about how the other person should be and about how we should be. Just a little bit at times, there's a little bit of a glimmer of light that enters in. We can begin to relax a little bit. There's an inner sense of, of being soothed, and then we can look in a fresh way. We can remember that we are all one being. We are living one life, although it doesn't appear that way. 
Taking refuge in our interconnectedness means understanding that when we hurt another, we really do hurt ourselves. We can't hurt someone else without our being hurt. At the same time, when we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, which is a very inconvenient thing, you know, because we think that we should be able to hurt ourselves, and it's our own business. And why should others have anything to do with it and be hurt? But it's just not how life works. It's not how things are. We need to take care of this body-mind experience that's been entrusted to us. It's not ours, and yet it is our responsibility. So we can't just hurt ourselves. We actually need to care for our hearts, need to care for ourselves. And this is a way of caring for others as well. We are all contributing to this environment, each in our own way. In Practicing open-heartedness to all beings, we can practice being open-hearted to all of our emotions, to all of our emotions. We can practice being open-hearted to all of our inner voices, to all of our thoughts. And this is what maybe you could say is the inner sangha. All of that, that crowd, sometimes what seems like a crowd of beings within, all conflicted and not agreeing. Having an agreement and then some other thought comes up and doesn't agree. And then a third voice comes in and then another voice and then it goes back to the first voice. So really this open-heartedness to all inner voices, this inner sangha. In embracing what seems like the unembraceable within in accepting what seems totally unacceptable within, without acting on these thoughts and emotions, without identifying with these thoughts and emotions as who we are in any kind of solid, substantial way, we can begin to trust ourselves. We can begin to live with a greater sense of ease. The practice teaches us to face whatever it is that is occurring in the here and now. We don't have to face what isn't happening, what we imagine may happen at some point in the future, which our future might be a few minutes from now, but that's still the future. Really, it's to be with what is right here and right now. And This offers us a growing inner strength. This strength of heart becomes a lasting refuge, that which we can truly rely upon. The Buddha said, with wise effort and earnestness, find for yourself an island that no flood can overwhelm. With wise effort and earnestness, find for yourself an island that no flood can overwhelm. As we find this inner refuge, we quite naturally become a refuge for one another. To the Buddhas residing in all directions, with my palms pressed together, 
I make this request. Please continue to shine the lamp of Dharma for living beings lost and suffering in the darkness of ignorance. May I become an island for those seeking dry land, a lamp for those needing light, a place of rest for those who desire one, and a servant for those needing service. May all beings find refuge and true happiness within themselves. May all beings offer refuge to one another. May all, ref- all beings live together in peace. Let's just sit for a moment or two. To the Buddhas residing in all directions, with my palms pressed together, I make this request. Please continue to shine the lamp of Dharma for living beings lost and suffering in the darkness of ignorance. May I become an island for those seeking dry land, a lamp for those needing light, a place of rest for those who desire one, and a servant for those needing service. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.